Father, what hope we have that on that day, on that final day, that we will certainly be home with you. And it is our joy to remind ourselves of the fact that you, O Lord, are our salvation. We're grateful for this time where we could worship you through singing, and we pray that you would be with us now as we uh, begin to open your word and study what it has to say. We're grateful, Father, for your loving kindness to us, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, and welcome to, uh, welcome to all of you to San Francisco Bible Church. It's really a joy for us to worship the Lord together as a church family, and uh, if you've been with us for some time or if you just uh, started joining us this morning, uh, we, we are preaching through the one another's. We're preaching through the one another's and, uh, whenever I have an opportunity to preach. And uh, we are fast approaching the end to that study. Uh, and so this morning, the one another that we will find ourselves in is found in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of James. We'll be looking at chapter 5 and we'll be reading and studying verses 12 through 20. Verses 12 through 20. James writes this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? And he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word and for the truths that are found in it. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we study what it has to say. May you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, eyes to see. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word and that you would glorify yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when you think about the word confess in a church context there are likely two things that come to mind. The first is probably something along the lines of Romans 10, verse 9, where we are told that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts, uh, believe that that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. So that's probably the first thing that we're thinking about. The second thing that may come to your mind is how our confession is different from a Roman Catholic confession, where the confession of sins can only go through a priest. Christian confession, on the other hand, is made to God directly. It's made to Christ correctly, directly. But does confrontation occur in 
uh, does, sorry, does confession, not confrontation, does confession occur in other contexts too? Well, yes. Christian confession, as we just read, happens within the body of Christ. It happens within the family of Christ. It is a necessary part of life together since we are all still in the process of becoming like Christ. Living together, whether it's in our families, with our friends, or our church family, inevitably exposes the remaining sins that reside in our hearts. And as a result, while we are still being transformed into the likeness of Christ, we will always have a need to confess sin towards one another. Moving on and acting as if nothing happened and that time will heal all wounds is neither acceptable or biblical. For we are told by our Lord and his apostles that confession of sins is what pleases God. So in our passage this morning, we are going to observe three features of a church that is committed to confessing sin to one another. Three features of a church committed to confessing sin to one another. And those features are that we are to speak with integrity, we are to pray compassionately, and we are to pursue mercifully. We do have a handout in our online bulletin as well, so if you would like to follow along there, uh, you can have that outline with you. There are some fill-in-the-blanks, um, and uh, there are the cross-references there as well. Um, but the first point, the first feature of a church that is committed to confessing sin to one another is that we speak with integrity. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and no be no so that you may not fall under judgment. Previously, in verses 7 through 11, James had instructed believers who were suffering, particularly at the hands of the wicked and oppressive rich in their community, to wait patiently upon the Lord and to beware of groaning and complaining against one another when wronged. To sinfully judge and condemn one another exposes a heart of unbelief. And whether that Unbelief is complete unbelief in God or just practical unbelief, right? Functional unbelief. It's still unbelief. And the thought of such a complainer would essentially be, God's not going to do anything about it, so I must. I must step in the gap and fill out what is missing, what is lacking. And in a similar warning of God's judgment, right, that, that's God's judgment is for those who have that unbelief. In a similar warning of, that God, that of, of God's judgment, James commands believers that we are, not, we are not to swear oaths. The command not to swear oaths, it's not a universal command. Right? It's not a universal command, but a very particular ban. Believers should not swear oaths in our everyday conversations to indicate that we are telling the truth. We hear statements like this all the time, right? Even today, because some people like to say, I swear to God, right? Or, this, or, you know, I've even heard other people, athletes, say, I swear on the lives of my parents. I swear on the lives of my children. I did not take substance-enhancing, um, performance-enhancing substances. Or we even swear oaths in a seeming romantic gestures too, right? I swear 
By the moon and the stars in the sky, I will be there. The point of these oaths is a promise. It's a promise that says, whatever I say is true. Just as true and as real as whatever I swore by. That's essentially the point of those kind of oaths. And James tells believers that this kind of oath-taking is unacceptable. Why? Because we ought to let our yes be yes and our no be no so that we won't fall under judgment. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why is making an oath such a big deal to God that he says judgment is on the table if you make these oaths? Ancient Jewish practice does not forbid taking oaths. We see it throughout the Old Testament. In fact, God himself takes oaths. So what's the problem? Well, the problem was with the misuse of oaths to allow one to appear truthful when in reality they were not. Why does that matter? It matters because God's people are supposed to be like God even in our speech. We're supposed to be like God even in our speech. And that means that our speech and our reputation should be so marked by truth that oaths are completely unnecessary. Everything that we say, we mean. It should be true. It should reflect that true character of God. So when someone is saying, are you sure you didn't do that? And you say, yeah, I didn't do that. You don't have to say, I swear I didn't do that. Right? Your word matters. And if we are not honorable in our speech, if we make oaths claiming that we are telling the truth and that our word is good when we're not, in fact, telling the truth or, or we're trying to find a loophole out of the situation, right? It's like, Oh, yeah, I definitely did it, right? And we're crossing our fingers, and then they come back to us and they say, well, I thought you said that this was true. And you're like, oh, well, I didn't mean it because I was crossing my fingers. So, ha-ha. We should not have that kind of attitude when it comes to our word. Our word should mean something, right? It should be true. Because we see in Matthew 12, 36, that we will give an account for every careless word that we have said. even if you're not a talkative person. Right? That is a heavy thing to consider because we have a lifetime of words that we have uttered. And not all of those words are good and not all of those words are true. Right? And we will give an account for every single one of them. If that doesn't give you chills down your spine, I don't know what will that we give an account for every careless word that we say. Now, for those who suffered at the hands of others like James's audience have, don't you imagine that they would be tempted not only to complain against those who have wronged them, but also to embellish a little bit, right? to add on some extra details or maybe hide some other truths to make it seem like they are for sure in the right, or that this other person, their transgressions against them is even bigger than it really is. Or even if it wasn't really that intentional, don't you imagine that they could misrepresent what other people have said to support their point? We do that all the time. Why, why couldn't they? Right? Why wouldn't they? Especially if they were suffering. 
And so what we, what the principle that we draw from here is this. If we're going to be a church that is committed to confessing sin to one another, then we have to be committed to have integrity when we speak. Right? We have to have integrity when we speak. When we confess our sins, we ought to confess it all. Right? Confess all of it. We have to resist the temptation to make whatever sin we've committed less than what it actually was. Aren't we tempted to do that? I don't really want to give a biblical label to it. I don't want to admit that it was actually sin. So, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't angry. I was just frustrated. And that's just one of our more common examples. Right? But we make it less than what it was. Because really, when we say that we're frustrated, what are we saying? We're angry. Why are we angry? Well, if you dig down a little deeper, it's because someone did not give you what you wanted. Whether it was, hey, let's go to lunch on time because I haven't eaten since breakfast and I'm starving, my blood sugar is crashing, and now I'm upset. We're taking forever to pick out where we're going to go to lunch and I haven't had my coffee. And right, and then it just goes on and on and on and on. Right? What's at the root of that? Pride. Pride. Right, so don't make it less than what it actually is. If we're going to deal with things biblically, then we have to give them biblical names. We have to identify them biblically. And not only that, but we also have to be willing to take full responsibility for any fault we have in any way that we've contributed to the problem. We also have to be willing to face consequences. And that's another reason why we don't always confess to the full what we've done. Because we don't want to face consequences. But brothers and sisters, friends, we have to be willing to face consequences. God's forgiveness is certainly there. Or he will forgive us. Right? But it doesn't mean, forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. Right? Is this easy? Is it fun? No. And no. But for the sake of pleasing our Lord and taking responsibility for our sins against him, and of course those we've sinned against, we must be willing to genuinely confess not just a part of our sin, but all of it. And for those who have been sinned against and who are in the position to grant forgiveness, when you grant forgiveness, you must likewise be full of integrity when you grant forgiveness. When you say that you forgive someone, you have to really mean it. You have to truly grant forgiveness. You can't grant forgiveness, but then the next time an opportunity comes up, you bring it back up in their face and say, remember that one time when you did the such and such and I forgave you? Right? And then, you know, on and on it goes. Right? But you have to actually be really willing to forgive. You, know, you have to be willing to not bring it up again. Or not to talk about others, not to talk about it with others, right, but to truly forgive and let love cover. The second feature of a church committed to confessing sin is that we are to pray compassionately. Right? So the first feature of a church that confesses that's committed to confessing sin to one another is that we uh, we are willing to speak the truth to one another. We speak with integrity. The second is that we pray are to pray compassionately. Verse thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? 
then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. The majority of Christians tend to remember God only during those moments of suffering. Now, that might be a little too strong, but you get the point, right? A lot of times, we can go about our day, and outside of praying for our meals, the only times that we really think about praying to God is when we're in trouble, when we need something from Him. And sometimes the only reason why we're remembering God is because we're asking, why, God? Why would you allow this into my life? Why this? Why now? Have you forgotten me? And when we see this instruction, right, if we are suffering, what should we do? He must pray in response to that suffering. We're reminded that in those moments of suffering, when we will be most tempted to have self-pity, that we are to turn ourselves completely over to God in prayer. Now, what are we supposed to pray about specifically? Well, James doesn't tell us, but may I suggest that in addition to in addition to asking God for comfort and for peace and for wisdom, that we also pray a humble prayer. The humble prayer that Jesus modeled for us in the disciples' prayer, found in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there is certainly room for us to ask God for comfort and to remove pain. But the Christian who looks to God with eyes of faith must not just pray to God to express pain and humbly ask for healing and comfort. The Christian must also submit themselves humbly to the will of God, knowing that he has sovereignly allowed our suffering. He has sovereignly allowed the circumstances of our suffering to accomplish his purposes in our lives, and perhaps even so that we might be able to minister to others in the future. One of my professors likes calling this tension the thy will be done perplexity. We pray that we want God's will to be done in our lives. But sometimes we don't know what he is doing. And this is, a, this is certainly a tough place to find ourselves. Right? But when we depend on God in our suffering, this is the attitude and the thinking that we must fight to have. Right? We must fight to remember that God is sovereign. That he is in control of all things. That he loves me. And he works all things according to my good so that I can be conformed into the image of Christ. And so even though I don't understand, even though I'm hurting, I will still say, your will be done. And I will still, like Job, bless God's holy name. Right? That's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of attitude that we have to fight for in suffering in confusion, and in pain. is to trust God fully. It's easy to trust God when you're happy. It's easy to trust God when things are going well. But when things are difficult, right, this is the attitude that we ought to have. Lord, I don't understand, but your will be done in my life. Of course, for the one who is cheerful, the task is way easier. 
As it's easy to sing praises when we're glad, but as we do so, we also know that we don't always give praise and thanks to God when things happen to us too, right? When good things happen to us, we don't always give thanks to God. We don't always sing praise to God. And so the challenge for us is to strive to remember that there is nothing too small to give God thanks for in this life. One of our elders reminded me of this recently, and he, he, said to us, uh, he said to me that God displays his kindness to us in salvation. And if you think about it, the priceless gift of salvation is the best gift that God could ever give, and he doesn't really owe us any more. And yet, God continually shows us kindness after kindness. And so everything else that we have in this life outside of salvation, it's bonus. It's bonus. What a great God we have. Should we not sing praises? We have salvation and then so much more. Should we therefore not sing praises and find opportunities to give thanks, even for the small things? Absolutely, we should. This brings us to verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. You know, God sometimes allows sicknesses and other physical things to occur in people's lives for his glory. And we see that in the example of the man born blind in John 9. Sin was not the reason why this man was born blind. However, we also know from David's life and from other Israelites like Miriam and King Asa, that God may allow sickness into the life of a sinner to remind the sinner of consequences, right? the consequences of their sin. We see both in Scripture, that 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 sicknesses are not a result of sin, but sometimes sicknesses can be a result of sin. We see both cases. And whatever the case may be, isn't it interesting that the one who is sick must call for the elders to pray over him. That tells us two things. Right? Well, one, he's not, he's not well enough to go to church. Right? So he's, um, he's at home, likely. Uh, but then he's calling the elders. Right? Well, why the elders? Right? One commentator I looked up made a very interesting observation. Doctors were available during those times that James wrote his letter. Right? Even an ancient book known as the book of Sirach, encouraged sick Jews to pray and then give way to the physician, for the Lord has created the physician. Now, the book of Sirach is simply a religious writing outside of the Old Testament scriptures, but it is interesting that there's an acknowledgement that you pray to God, but you still go to the doctor. So why, why would we call the elders when we should really probably be calling a physician. I don't know if you've checked our credentials lately, but the majority of us, minus two, do not have medical expertise. So why would we call the elders? It's not because the elders have special powers, special gifts of healing. It's not because we purchased that holy extra virgin olive oil that was pressed and bottled in Jerusalem in Jesus' tomb, and therefore we have the power to uh, to heal you whenever you call us, and we'll just pull out our little bottle and we'll sprinkle you with some of that oil. All right, by the way, there's no such thing. I made it up. 
the elders are called to pray over someone and anoint them with oil to remind the one who is suffering from illness that the Lord has not forgotten him. It's a physical reminder that the Lord has not forgotten the one who is sick. This is a symbolic anointing of oil. It's simply a reminder that we are lifting this one up, the sick one up, to God in prayer. And as both elders and the one who is sick prays, as they pray together, it provides opportunities for reflection. And if sin is present, then it provides an opportunity for confession of sin. It is in those cases that the Lord will forgive the one who is sick. And you all know, as well as I do, that just because the elders may pray over someone, it doesn't mean that there will be an immediate or miraculous saving from illness and raising up to full health. If that was the case, then we would never lose anyone. All the people in our church who are sick, they'll get better immediately. But that's not what we see. Therefore, this promise that the Lord will save and raise up the one who is sick is limited to those prayers for healings that match up with God's plan for this sick individual. The prayer offered in verse 15 is therefore not saying, if you and those who are with you have enough faith, you will be healed. It is not. Okay? It is not because people lack faith that one is not healed. You hear that in contemporary Christianity today, right? That if you pray enough, and if you have enough faith, you will be healed. And if you didn't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Isn't that wicked? Isn't that awful? To say to somebody, oh, you know, the reason why you didn't get better, you didn't believe in God. Everyone else in this room, they didn't believe in God enough too. What a wicked thing to say to someone who is already sick and hurting and weak. It is not because you lacked enough faith. Healing in this life only occurs if it is in line with the will of God for our lives now. God has other plans. His plans might not be our plans. His ways are definitely not our ways. And so we submit even those illnesses over to him. Now, for those who are not healed in this life, it's not as if God is unfaithful or that we've missed out or lost either. For we know that the Lord will eventually deliver people from their long-term illnesses and raise them up in the dead uh, in the end. Raise them up from the dead in the end. Right? Whether that ends in their graduation to heaven or the future rapture, we know from Revelation 24 that in that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will, be no, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And so if you are a believer suffering from long-term health issues, remember the hope that you have in Christ. It may not be clear when the end will come, but fix your eyes and your hope upon Jesus because he is not forgotten. As we were reminded back in James 5.11, the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. The Lord will make everything right. 
So do not lose heart. But in the suffering, strive to live your life to glorify him. Knowing that he has forgiven you of your sins and has the power not just to heal, but also to bring you safely home. And this brings us to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So in light of the great power of God to heal and forgive sins, and that's what that therefore is for, James commands believers to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Sick believers are to call on the elders for prayer, but the responsibility to pray for one another is not limited to the elders. Right? You can't say, well, I'm not an elder, so I hear that you're sick, hope you feel better. No, we're all to pray. Right? It's the responsibility of the whole church to pray because we're one. Right? When one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one is lost, we are all heartbroken. We all desire that one to repent and to return to the Lord. We pray for one another compassionately, knowing that though suffering is a part of God's plan, that pain, it is real. And so we come alongside. Right? We come alongside those who hurt, and we are to pray for them. And this reminder for everyone in the church to confess sins to one another and to pray for one another is a reminder that there is no power in the office of elder in and of itself. The power is in the prayer. But lest we forget, prayer itself contains no power either. The power in prayer is found in the one to whom we pray. Did you catch that? The power in prayer is not just the prayer itself. Right? The power in prayer is found in the one to whom we pray. It's in God. The reason why prayer is powerful, the reason why forgiveness of sins and healing is even remotely possible is because of God who answers those prayers. You can pray all you want to Allah, to Buddha, to your ancestors. They ain't going to do nothing for you because they have no power. But God... He has the power. That's why he can do something. And as we think about the idea of confessing sins to one another, to whom do we confess sins? Now, certainly we confess sins to those whom we've sinned against. If we publicly sin against people, we must confess those, those sins to them directly. And how do we do that? Well, one, you want to be specific and to the point. And you want to be specific in how you've sinned and you want to be to the point. Multi, you know, with a multitude of, of words, there is transgression. There is a possibility of transgression. We also don't want to make excuses or blame shift. Right? When, when you're confessing sin, you don't want to say, I'm, I'm so sorry that I sinned against you, that I was, that I was hangry towards you. you know, it, was, it was all these things. You know, I was hungry. My blood sugar was crashing. But then you, know, you were also kind of being really annoying and indecisive. It's like, well, thank you. Right? You just, you just stab me in the back while you're confessing sin to me. That's not helpful. Right? So we don't want to blame shift. We don't want to make excuses. Take full responsibility. Right? 
take full responsibility for how you sinned. It doesn't matter whether what they did made you upset. You didn't have to respond with sin, right? We don't have to respond with sin to sin. But we do. We make that choice. So we have to take full responsibility for that. Now, what if, right, what if this person actually sinned against you and you were simply just responding? Well, like we just said, right? We didn't have to respond that way. So we're still responsible for our actions before God. You can't say, God, I'm not responsible for this. You shouldn't, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't punish me for this. You shouldn't discipline me for this because look what they did to me. And God's, God would look at us and be like, yeah, but what could have you done? Who should your hope have been in? How could have you responded? And so we're responsible before God for all that. We're responsible to God for all of our actions, for all of our thoughts, for all of our attitudes. And, you know, when we confess sin to the person that we've sinned against, it also might be appropriate to confess sin to those who may have witnessed our sinful actions too. Right? Because if you sin in public in full view of everybody else, right, you've sinned against them too. You had a t- poor testimony also. Or you were a stumbling block for the whole group of people who witnessed it. So it might be appropriate to confess sin to them as well. If we sin in our thoughts and our attitudes towards one another, right, internally, right, the, the sins that I was just talking about that were external, if we're sinning internally, right, those thoughts, attitudes, sins, right, we confess that sin to God and perhaps also to an accountability partner. Because right, if it's internal, you don't need to tell the other person the things that were going on in your own head, because they don't know what was going on in your own head, right? If you confess to them, hey, you know, when you were up there, I was really wrestling with a lot of hatred towards you. It's like, what did I do? All right, so you don't need to tell them. That'd be really weird, right? If someone came up to you and said, hey, brother, sister, I, I must confess to you, I really hate you. It's like, okay, that's, that's really strange. Thank you for telling me. I don't know. I'll try not to be you know, so annoying to you, but you know, it's just a weird thing. Right? So confess those to the Lord. Turn those over to the Lord. If it's in your own head, though, you don't have to confess it to, to that person. Right? And the reason why we confess it to the Lord is because our aim, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 reminds us, is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The point is that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, the point of confession is not therapeutic. The point of confession is not therapeutic. It's not just so that you can feel better about yourself and so that you can say, well, I don't feel as guilty anymore because I got it off my chest. Or the point of confession is acknowledgement of sin. That word for confession that we see here in James chapter 5 it's not the normal word that we see, which, says, which is basically saying the same thing as someone else, right? which would be confessing or admitting that we're the same as, or that we've sinned according to God's standard. This is a little different. It's acknowledgement of wrong. It's similar but different. But anyways, the point of confession is acknowledgement of sin, sorrow over sin, taking responsibility for the sins that we committed and having a desire to be restored to proper fellowship with man and God, right? That's the point of confession. If we are the one sinned against, 
the accountability partner, the discipler, or the counselor of the one confessing sins, we pray with them. We pray with the one who is confessing sins because we want to be restored in fellowship with them also. It's out of our love and our compassion for them that we want to help them pursue what God wants for them. We want for them to be forgiven. When righteous people pray for God's will to be done, God will certainly make their prayers effective. He'll provide the working energy behind the prayer. How do we know? Verses 17 through 18, the example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah's just a regular guy, just like us, in the sense that he has a sin nature. But though he had a sin nature, just like any one of us, God used him to bring judgment upon wicked King Ahab and Israel as they followed after wicked King Ahab. And through the prompting of God, Elijah prayed for judgment upon that land. And God miraculously caused a drought on the earth for three and a half years. This is 1 Kings 17 and 18. Now when God determined that that judgment was enough, that that punishment was enough, God had Elijah pray again. And at the conclusion of the prayer, rain was brought back. So yes, you know, Elijah was a prophet. Yes, God worked mightily through Elijah, but in all reality, he was just a guy. He was a man just like us, and God used his prayers, which were in accordance to his will, to accomplish his plans on the earth. Now, if God can use the prayers of a man like us to begin his judgment on Israel for her wickedness and to end it too, How much more can God use the compassionate prayer of his saints to bring about repentance and healing in the lives of sinning believers? He absolutely can. And that brings us to the third feature that a church committed to confessing sin to one another ought to have, should have, and that is we are to pursue mercifully. Pursue mercifully, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone... Oh, sorry, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We can see here that James's concern for the people is real. Right? He's coming alongside and he says, my brothers. Right? There's a familial tone to that. And he's reminding them, guys, brothers, We have an obligation to pursue each other mercifully. Why is it mercy to pursue someone from church if they stray from the truth, if they abandon the faith? It is mercy to pursue them because the consequence of straying from the truth and abandoning the true faith in Christ Jesus results in hell. The Greek word for sinner in verse 20 appears 47 times in the New Testament. In 42 out of those 47 occurrences, the word sinner is used to describe a godless and unsaved person. In other words, they're still in their sins. 
This is not a word that is used to describe a genuine Christian who has some occasional struggles with sin. Rather, this is a word that describes someone who is an unbeliever. It describes someone who is still lost in their sin. Right? That word sinner, right, it's, it tells us that you are characterized completely by your sin. But how can this be? How can this be if the person who strays from the truth is someone who is, as verse 19 puts it, among the people in church? It is likely that people who abandon the faith in Christ may have professed faith in Christ, but never truly had a real love for Jesus. And this is not to say that the things that they did or the emotions that they felt at the time were not real. I'm sure that those who walk away truly felt as if they loved Jesus for a time or for a season. But their faith likely was not rooted in true love for Jesus. It was rooted in emotions instead. And Jesus explains how this can happen in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. It's otherwise known as the parable of tares among wheat. Now, tares are a type of weed that resembles wheat. It looks a whole lot like wheat as it's growing. But when the time comes for the wheat to sprout, it doesn't ever bear grain. And that's how you know that it's a tare rather than wheat. The tares will not bear grain. So when someone claims to have placed their faith in Jesus, we take their word at face value. Right? We take their profession of faith at face value. However, it is often in trials or temptations that we really begin to see whether one's profession of faith bears faith or whether it reveals unbelief. Now, it is true. That genuine believers can temporarily get stuck in their sins. And it's true that they will struggle at times to respond with faith. But a genuine believer will be able to fight their way out of their sins and respond with faith and a desire to please God through the help of the Holy Spirit. You will, because of God's promise, be able to get through if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Because every day, every moment, true believers in Jesus Christ are faced with the decision either to please themselves or to please Christ. Who are you going to live for? Are you going to live for yourself and to please yourself? Or are you going to live for Christ and to please Christ? Genuine Christians may struggle with this choice at times, but as they grow... As they grow, they should see true love for Christ in their own hearts. They should see a desire to obey, and they should have a desire to be like him. If there is no such desire, if someone remains in their sins and has no desire to repent, then they may have very well proven that they don't have a heart of love and faith in Christ, but rather they have a heart of unbelief, a heart of rebellion, a heart of sin. Now, this isn't always the case. 
Okay, this isn't always the case. But the way that someone responds to trials and suffering may prove that someone is a tear among the wheat. You see, it is impossible. It is impossible for a genuine Christian to have both genuine Christian faith and a domineering sinful lifestyle. The two are incongruent. They are incompatible. It's like trying to charge your phone with a charger that does not work. Right? If you have an iPhone, it's like trying to charge your iPhone with a USB-C. You're not an Android. You can't charge your phone with that. It won't work no matter how hard you try. The one who claims to have faith but also claims sin as an identity has no true faith. It doesn't matter how much they tell you, I love Jesus. If they say that their sin defines them, if they categorize themselves with their sin, if they label themselves with their sin, they have no true faith. Because Jesus doesn't save us to keep us in our sins. He doesn't save us just to allow for us to continue on to be in our sins. The one who claims faith needs to have a desire to genuinely repent and to be like Christ. Christ doesn't give us excuses for our sins, so why would we? We can't. And so, out of mercy, out of a love for the one who strays, James says that we ought to pursue. Because the one who strays strays from the truth of the word of God and they live in error. When James says, he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death, he is not saying that the one who turns the sinner back from their sins saves that sinner from physical death. Now, sometimes that might be true, right? but it's not physical death that he has in his mind. The death that threatens the soul is not a physical death, but a spiritual death. It is the eternal wrath and separation from God that every unbeliever is destined to face if they do not eventually confess their sins and believe that Jesus died and rose again in order to free them from their sin and to cover their multitude of sins. As we just saw back in James 5.16, the whole reason why we are to confess sins to one another and to pray for one another is because God has the power to forgive us our sins. He will surely forgive us of all of our sins. He will surely bring about healing from the effects of sin upon our lives. And so, as Christians who have been saved by the grace of God, We ought to have a heart of compassion for those who remain in their sins. We shouldn't be surprised that they live sinful lives because that's just the nature of a sinner. But instead of condemning them and judging them and saying, well, I don't know if you're part of the elect, so good luck, we are to pray for them. We are to pray for them. We are to lovingly and mercifully pursue them. We are to strive to do what we can what we can, to point out the error of their ways according to God's holy standard, not our preferences, so that they might confess their sins to God, so that they might realize that their lives don't match up with their profession of faith. And if, if, by God's grace, God uses our loving confrontation to help someone truly place their faith in Christ, 
right, to repent of their sins, then that person will know the full joy of salvation. They will no longer be under the imminent threat of God's condemning judgment, but will be, rather, completely forgiven of their sins. Though the struggle with sin may still remain, they can live with confidence, the same confidence that we can find in Philippians 1.6, which reminds us that God will be faithful to complete the good work that he began in us, to make us perfect, to make us like the mirror image of Jesus Christ. And he'll be faithful to complete that transforming work in our lives. There are no unfinished products in heaven. God will finish what he started. Friends who have gathered here today to worship God, consider who you are before God today. Are you one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you a genuine Christian who loves the Lord and who has confessed sin, not just at the moment of repentance, but every time it has been uncovered in your life? Or have you prayed the sinner's prayer But outside of changing your schedule and maybe every now and then helping out at church, nothing's really changed. Your sins remain. Your sins characterize you. The words bitter, angry, prideful, impatient, arrogant, jealous, selfish, and words like those are descriptions that stick. Again, a Christian can certainly struggle with these sins. But do they characterize you? Do they characterize you? Isn't that crazy? That there should actually be no such thing as an angry Christian. That there should actually be no such thing as a prideful Christian. That there should actually be no such thing as a bitter Christian or a jealous Christian or a selfish Christian or an impatient Christian. There should be no such thing. There can be no such thing. You'll struggle with it for a little bit, but it cannot characterize you. It cannot be the way that you operate. Because if these descriptions stick, you really have to take a hard and honest look at yourself and consider, have I really put off the old man and put on the new? Am I really striving to have the mind of Christ? Am I really striving to love Christ with all that I am and to become more like him? Because if you're examining your life and you realize that you can't say yes to those questions, And that's probably an indicator that though you may have professed faith, you don't truly have faith. But then again, that's good news. Right? Don't lose heart. Because if you are a genuine Christian who struggles with these sins, right? you get caught up temporarily with these sins, repentance from sin is still possible. Right? The Lord can and will help you put off that old self, put off those old sinful responses, and put on God-honoring ones. Right? And if you realize that you're not a Christian, that's good news too, because God's 
love for you is available to you today. That repentance from sin and faith in Christ is available to you today. That good news, right, you know what it is. Romans 10, 9 tells us this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And also 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are here this morning and you know that you are not a Christian, the good news of the gospel found in those last two verses, they apply to you just as much as they apply to someone who grew up in church but does not believe. Every single one of us was born with rebellion against God in our hearts. None of us are righteous. None of us are perfect. Not even one. And for that, all of us deserve to go to hell as punishment for breaking God's law, for failing to meet his righteous standard and failing to love him and to give thanks to him. But the good news of the gospel is that God provided a way of forgiveness through his son, Christ Jesus, through his death and his resurrection. God is willing to save He is willing to save sinners from the errors of their ways. He is willing to save their souls from eternal death. He is willing to cover or forgive a multitude of sins, not just the big ones, all of them. And so will you this day, this very hour, cry out and confess to God, yes, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve hell. Please forgive me because he is ready. He is willing. He offers mercy and compassion to you through the good news found in his word. And so will you confess your sins to God today and believe in him? This morning, we had the opportunity to study the one another, of confess to one another. And we did it in its context. And in doing so, we observed three features of a church committed to confessing sin to one another. A church that is committed to confessing sin to one another will speak with integrity towards each other. We will pray compassionately for one another and we will mercifully pursue one another out of concern for one another. May the Lord be with us as we continue to strive and to grow in all of these areas in our lives and in our practice as a church. Before we sing in response, I want to provide some application questions for you all to consider, to meditate upon. Number one, why might it be tempting to hold back details in our confession of sin to one another? Why is it tempting to hold back details? Why don't we just confess straight up? Question number two, are there any unconfessed sins of thought, mind, and attitude in our lives that need to be repented of before God? And number three, are there any unconfessed sins that we've committed against other people that need to be repented of before God and to those other people? And just kind of bonus, how might we go about confessing sin and asking for forgiveness from those people that we've sinned against? Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for just these reminders, Lord, of who, uh, how you want us to be as a church, who you want us to be as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to confess sin. We are to speak with full integrity about our sins. We are to, to pray for each other as we 
all recognize that we're all sinners and also that we're to pursue each other when we see one who strays from the truth. We're grateful for these, these truths, Lord. We pray that you would help us all to consider how we, uh, how we stand before you. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to be committed all the more to follow after you with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. Or if there are some here among us who are not believers in Jesus Christ, we pray that, Lord, you would help them see how much you love them. Help them see how much danger they're in because of their sin, but also how you yourself have provided a way of escape to them. Thank you, Father, for this time where we could study your word and and worship together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.